Uh, well, good morning, everybody. How are we today? Pretty good. Uh, John 1.14 says this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. For the last three weeks, we've been in our season of Advent. It's a season of waiting and preparation. A season where we make our yearly pilgrimage back to the Christmas story. And when doing so, usually we turn to Matthew uh, or Luke to piece together the beloved narrative of Jesus's... It was the offering, don't worry about it. Uh, when we piece together the beloved narrative of Jesus's birth. And it's in these places that we see the facets of the story that we're very, very familiar with. The young virgin girl being told that she is going to carry the Son of God. The honorable young man who chooses to stay by her side. The no vacancy sign at the inn, and thus the dimly lit barn scene with all the animals in tow becomes the setting. And there's the infant child wrapped in the white blanket laying in the manger. The star is perched high above Bethlehem, and there's the visitation of the angels to the shepherd boys and the journey of the wise men who bring strange, and I would say as a parent, incredibly impractical gifts to new teenage parents. But it's this story that frames our entire Advent season, right? Perhaps one of the most well-known stories in all of Scripture. We can recite many of the details. And it's a comfortable story. Every Christmas season, I look forward to getting back into the story because it uh, reminds me of growing up and learning about how Jesus was born, and there's comfort in it. And I know that the story's been westernized and it's been sterilized from what the scene probably looked like in that moment. And in fact, I've given entire sermons about that, that what we imagine probably didn't happen in that way. But that story still has deeply, deeply impacted my life, not because of its details, but because of the theological outworking of the story, because it's a story that tells of the incarnation, when the God of the universe came to us in our form as a human. C.S. Lewis speaks of the incarnation like this. He says, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. They say that God became man. Every other miracle prepares for this or exhibits this or results from this. Just as every natural event is the manifestation at a particular place and moment of nature's total character, so every particular Christian miracle manifests at a particular place and moment the character and significance of the incarnation. At Christmas, we celebrate Emmanuel, God with us. Not because it's just a piece of the story, but because it's the center of our entire story. Now, interestingly, John gets at this central miracle of the incarnation much differently than Mark and Luke. Rather than using multiple chapters like they do, John tells it this way. And the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us. Nine total words. Short, succinct, incredibly efficient. This is John's Christmas story. John's purpose was not to paint a detailed picture of how it happened, but to quote one of my favorite theologians, he is trying to make a point about the way God has chosen to be with us, Russ Davis. What I want to focus on this morning is the singular word in the phrase that gives verse 14 all of its theological depth, and that's the word dwell. Dwell is about far more than just the physical place that Jesus takes. It comes from the Greek word skeneo, figuratively means to tent or encamp. But more specifically, when read in this time and in this place, people would have read it as to tabernacle as God did. Russ spoke a little bit to this a couple of weeks ago, so uh, this will take us a little bit more in depth but to understand fully what dwell means, it's helpful to know a little bit about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable tent or temple that the Israelites kept on hand as they journeyed the desert between Egypt and the Promised Land. We first see this idea of the tabernacle in Exodus 25 through 27, and then again in 35 through 40. And these passages in, in excruciating detail lay out exactly how the tabernacle is to be constructed. If you want to give it a read, it's incredibly riveting stuff. Uh, you might want to. But the bottom line is that the tabernacle is an ornate tent intended to recreate the idea of the garden. It was specifically designed to be the place where God could reside and be once again, where he could dwell like he did in the beginning of creation. It was a place where the Israelites thought they could contain God, where the infinite could meet the finite, where the eternal could be with the temporal, where the divine could be near the fleshly. As they were freed from Pharaoh, as they were wandering in the desert, the tabernacle became their symbol of God's presence. And it becomes fundamental to how the Israelites understand and articulate the relationship that they have with the Creator. Which brings us back to John's version of the Christmas story in John 14. Because we know, simply because he's already told us, that there was the Word, the Word was in the beginning, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But then in verse 14, we find out that God becomes flesh and tabernacles with us. This would have been understood as a remarkable movement by God. A remarkable movement. Jesus' choosing to dwell with us draws on the symbology of the tabernacle. God's presence, his protection, and his communion is now fully available to all in the incarnation. That first Christmas was the moment that humans no longer had to build sacred spaces to bring God near. 
because now God chooses to take human form and dwell holy with his people in the ordinary. That is incredibly good news. Jesus' act of dwelling fundamentally changes the relationship between the sacred and the secular. And this is why Lewis, C.S. Lewis, speaks about this as the grand miracle. So what does this mean for us is the question, especially in this Christmas season. What does this truth mean for us? The late and loved Eugene Peterson in his work, The Message, famously translated John 1.14 to say this, The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. How many people have heard that before? Many of us, right? Maybe one of the most famous uh, singular translated verses that he has in John 1.14. And I can actually remember using this translation when I worked in Young Life to speak to teenagers about the incarnation, about what it was like for God to, and I would use this word, squeeze himself into the form of a man and live on earth. Kids could easily associate with the idea of someone moving in to their neighborhood. But now that I've lived a little bit more life, I'm not so sure that this translation works all that well. Because if all Jesus did was move into the neighborhood, then honestly it was not that big of a deal. Why do I think this? Because I myself have several real-life neighbors and their living in my neighborhood has not impacted my life all that much. I have not been changed much by their being in my neighborhood, and if I were honest, their lives probably haven't been all that changed by my living in their neighborhood. This may be shocking to you, but I'm not the type of neighbor that lingers around my front yard looking to talk to random passerbys. I don't stand out after mowing my lawn and just look at the lawn in front of me and hope somebody comes and wants to chat about anything. I'm kind of a keep it to myself <laughs> type of neighbor. Now don't get me wrong, my neighbors are fine people. In fact, some of them might even be sitting here in this room today. But being a neighbor in our current context is really about being respectful. It's about being cordial. It's about kindness. It's about honoring others' privacy. It's about living well in a common space. Being a good neighbor is not what Jesus did. When we minimize Jesus' incarnational action to being our neighbor, I believe we run the risk of believing our Christian duty of love looks like neighborliness. And I'm not sure that that's what our call is. Now, in a Christian-y type of way, I do love my neighbors, but in reality, I'm just kind and respectful. And for most of us, our neighborliness is consistent with these things. Kindness, respect, honoring other people's privacy, which are categorically different than the transformative love of the Incarnation. Jesus moving into the neighborhood isn't about building equity. Incarnation isn't just about proximity. God didn't choose to dwell with us so that we could see him or so that we could have better access to him, not even just so that he could understand what it meant to be human. 
You see, the incarnation was driven by love. And that love was manifested in his willingness to dwell. I would argue that love is not love at all if the lover is not willing to dwell. This is what we remember on the third Sunday of Advent. Because one of the boldest gestures of love in human history was Jesus humbly taking the form of a man, giving up any sense of equality with God, not so that he could live just in a common space with us, but so that he could fully love through the act of dwelling with humanity. This then becomes our model. The love that we are called to embody and to live out is actualized in our ability to dwell with other people. So, Kevin, how do we dwell? Two points. First, it's about presence. To be present with someone, you need to be physically, emotionally, and spiritually available and close. This is why long-distance relationships suck. Because no matter how much you love someone, presence is difficult, if not fully impossible, at a distance. Loving relationships are best and really only cultivated within arm's length. I can remember the summer that Grace and I were engaged. I was working at a camp, and the only way that we could communicate was through letter writing, sending mixed tapes, and phone card calls once a week. There was these things called phone cards, all right? So the millennials in here will have no idea what I'm talking about. A little card with digits on there, you dial it in, and it w it, you had like amount of minutes that you could use. Hans, that's for you, okay, because <laughs> you have no idea. There was a certain time at night that I could call and use my phone card. It was terrible. This summer was terrible. I had a great experience personally and, and by myself, and I grew spiritually, that stuff, you know, all that stuff's great. Being away from grace was terrible. All I wanted to do was to tabernacle grace. Oh, that actually worked better than I thought. When I first said that, I didn't know if people would laugh, but that was okay. Of course I mean that in an incredibly pastoral way, right? But the distance between us militated against our ability to be present with one another. You can't experience presence via a phone call. To love someone, to truly love someone, there has to be presence in intertwining of life. Rainier Maria Rilke, famous Austrian poet and novelist, which I did write this down, Real name is Rene Carl Wilhelm Johann Joseph Maria Rilke, if you were wondering. But he says this, love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and touch and greet one another. Love consists in this, that two solitudes protect and touch and greet one another. You see, presence is permanently establishing oneself next to the other. To go back to the idea of tabernacle, it's setting up your tent next to another's with no intention of leaving, no matter the circumstance. 
Dwelling requires presence. It requires being around. It requires being available, being open. It requires sticking it out. That's what presence looks like. But dwelling is not just about presence because once you are present with another human being, then you have to actively choose to love that person above yourself. This is the crux, the selfish act of choosing the best for another person. In Philippians, Paul speaks of how we should emulate Jesus saying this, in humility value others above yourself, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. You see, the act of emptying, emptying oneself for the betterment of the other is when presence becomes the act of dwelling. I can be around somebody. I can be close to somebody. I can be available uh, emotionally and spiritually, but until I actively choose to love them above myself, I'm not really dwelling with that person in the way that Jesus dwelt with us. Now, this comes natural, this act of loving comes natural with those that you are closest with, like your family, maybe even some of those in this building, but this posture should ultimately move beyond these walls and extend into the world. Dwelling should be the way that we live. Presence with and choosing the other above ourselves is the outworking of love. We read this earlier with our Advent reading, and I, and I want to read it again because I think it's beautiful. This is John speaking about the reality of love, and he says this, Beloved, let us love one another because love is from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, for God is love. God's love was revealed among us in this way. God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be our atoning sacrifice for our sins. Beloved, since God loved us so much, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God lives in us and his love is perfected in us. You see, love doesn't need to be some ethereal ideal that we don't think can be obtained. It came in a real human person and lived with other humans. This now is being perfected in us as we live with those who are in our lives. This is the centrality of the incarnation and it's really what the entire Christmas story is all about. During Advent, we remember that Jesus choosing to dwell with us in this way is an ongoing and divine movement of God, and that this reality should inform our understanding of what it means to be a Christian, of what it means to love others. Brendan Manning says this, the litmus test of our love of God is our love of neighbor. So let us not be a people that only loves when it's convenient. Let us not insulate ourselves, loving only those who are easy to love. 
or have something to offer back to us. Let us practice presence by putting down our phones and those things that distract us so that we can be with those who God has put in our lives. May our love never be sterile or measured. For the man living on the street deserves to be looked in the eyes just as much as our children do. Let me close with this final thought. This morning is not about creating undue guilt for all the times that we've missed out on opportunities to love someone else, opportunities to dwell with somebody. In fact, Christmas, I believe, is the yearly time that we get to reset that we get to seize the abundant opportunities placed before us to dwell with those around us. So ask yourself this morning, who do you need to dwell with? This doesn't have to be a monumental action. It begins in the mundane, in the ordinary of life, just as it did with Jesus. So in the next few days, will you have an opportunity to be quiet with someone who needs to talk? Is there a stranger who needs your hospitality? Can you exercise a little bit more patience with little ones? Could you choose to leave your cell phone on the counter during Christmas breakfast rather than having it at the table with you? Can you actively slow down in a world of chaos? Could you practice an act of generosity with somebody? Would you choose to assume the best of someone in your life and offer them grace before condemnation? Little ways that we can begin to dwell, that we can allow love to be perfected in us. Let us remember on that first Christmas that we were seen as worthy for the divine to take our form, to come and to tabernacle with us, to show how to truly love, to dwell. And if we believe the Christmas story and if we look to it as a place of understanding of the God we serve, then we too should be a people that dwells. Would you stand with me? Let me leave you with this benediction. Go now from this place, remembering the holy promise made and kept. You are lovable and loved. Remember that Jesus is your hope, your peace, your joy, and love. Be rooted in the holy promise made and kept that you are lovable and loved. Go forth resting in the name of our holy God, our Messiah, Jesus, and our breath of life, the Spirit. Amen. Go in peace today. We hope to see you tomorrow for a Christmas Eve celebration.